This morning's sermon passage comes from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So now our God and Father, would you speak your word through your spirit Would you cause us to hear and receive and believe and be transformed? Would you cause us to meet with you because we've heard your word proclaimed? Lord, would you do this today? Lord, we're we're pleading with you and we're pleading for your help. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated. If you haven't done so already, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn over to Titus chapter 2. We are first working our way through the book of Titus, and second, we're spending a prolonged amount of time here in Titus chapter 2. Here's why. Because the the vision of Titus 2 is a discipleship of Christians that is not vague. It's it's quite pointed. What what Paul is saying to Titus is, teach men, teach women, teach bondservants, teach everyone to pursue Jesus in such a way that it bears fruit. And I think it's of vital importance that we slow down and consider what Paul says to Titus. So we've, we've considered the, the kind of overarching message of the chapter. Last week, we considered um, one character trait that arises here, self-control, 
kind of as a central theme of the passage. Today, we're going to think about men, and next week, we're going to think about women. So today, we're going to think about men. Next week, we're going to think about women. So half of you are like, well, then why am I here? Well, one, so I could tell you to be here next week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you're, you're here because we're all the people of God. And the project of men who glorify the Lord is a group project. And the project of women who glorify the Lord is a group project. So ladies, what I'm pleading with you is for you to listen to this sermon as if you have a vital role of prayer and encouragement and lovingly pointing in good ways in the godliness and sanctification of the men that are in your sphere. And next week, I'll say the exact same thing to men. What we're going to see today is that the grace of God that's extended through Jesus is intended to shape men in all realms of life. The grace of God that's extended through Jesus Christ is intended to shape men in all realms of life. Now, the first point, if you want to take notes, is grace that shapes. Grace that shapes. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you're going to be like, Jamie, I feel like you're preaching the same first point every Sunday. Here's the thing. I am. I am plagiarizing myself. It's not because I'm lazy. It's not because I'm unwilling to study. It's because of this. I want us to believe that this is what God is saying. Anytime the church starts talking about things like character, desired outcomes, we, we, it just gets convoluted in our minds and, and, and we think, is, is that really what the Bible says? And so I'm, I'm just, I want to plead with you to show you that indeed this is what the scripture is saying. So look at verses 11, 12, 13, and 14 with me. For the grace of God has appeared. And, and what that means is the grace of God, the the favor and love and saving mercy of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared. Why? Bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared to bring salvation for all people. Men, women, boy, girl, this country and that country this ethnicity and that ethnicity, this religious background and that religious background, we all need Jesus. Apart from Christ, we stand alone and condemned, but in Christ, we stand forgiven, redeemed, and belonging to God. So grace brings salvation, and order matters here. Grace brings salvation before grace brings shaping of 
character. We don't have to shape up and line up to become the people of God. Grace brings salvation. But we can't stop there. We have to keep reading. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do you see that? The same grace that brings salvation trains us to live and be different because of the new life we have in Christ. It's right there in verse 12. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will not be complete until Christ returns. So I've admitted that I'm repeating a theme again and again and again, and here's why. Much of our Christian upbringing presumes that verse 12 is not in the Bible. It goes like this. For the grace of God appeared as bringing salvation for all people, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that's an easier message to preach. Get Jesus, live and be happy, because one day you're going to die and go to heaven. It's an easy message to preach. Most of the New Testament we could throw away. Most of our heartache and troubles we could throw away. Why? Because struggle, heartache, trouble... Fear, anxiety comes when a desire to follow Jesus meets with our sin or the sin of others being imposed upon us. Trying to walk in grace, walk by grace in a fallen world is the battle. It is the hardship. It is the struggle. And verse 12 says that the grace that saves will empower and teach and train us to be transformed, to live for God's glory. I'm trying to use all the Christian cliches I can. To love God and love others in this life. Verse 12 is a theology for the here and now, which means that God saved us not because of anything we've done, but because of his grace. And it means he has a vision for how we live and move and have our being in the here and now. The grace that saves is a grace that shapes. Now here in just a minute, we're going to get into some specific characteristics that Paul desired to see from men who are shaped by grace. Now, when I get to those characteristics, this is how I want you to think about them. So my pragmatic people, here we go. Pragmatism starts right now, okay? Number one, I cannot earn God's favor, salvation, 
or blessing. I need the blood of Jesus Christ to give me God's favor, God's blessing, God's forgiveness, and God's love. I need that. So if you're here today exploring our faith, exploring Christianity, then when I talk in a few minutes about self-control and sober-mindedness and dignity and sound in faith and sound in love and sound in steadfastness, I want that conversation to push you to say, those things, I can't be those things the way the Bible talks about these things without the grace of God through Jesus. It's not possible. Let this conversation cause you to consider how much you need Jesus. If that's where you are today, I would love an opportunity to talk with you more about that. We have resources out in the entryway that would help you consider Christ. We'd love to help you take a step toward Christ. If that's where you are today, thank you for being here. Please listen intently, and you can pray this. God, if you are real, would you help me understand what it would mean that the Your grace has saved me because of Jesus. Help me understand that today. We can keep going, though. When we read this, we can say, because I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, because all of me and all of my life belongs to Jesus, I will be zealous for this characteristic to be evident in my life. And again, order matters. Because I've been redeemed, because I belong to the Lord, I will be zealous for this characteristic of my life. And some of you are probably listening right now, and you're like, Jamie, that just kind of feels like a little old school self-righteousness. I hope not. I think I'm being biblical, so let's let's keep reading. Verse 14 Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to take away the evil, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, to make us a people who belong to him, who are zealous for good works. And every modern translation of the Bible reads very similarly to that because that's what the original language says. God redeems. God possesses. God changes the way his people talk and live and act. He wants his people to be shaped and transformed by the new life they have in Christ. So before I leave this point, I'm just pleading with all of us to say God's grace is intended to shape who I am. Perhaps radically reshape who I am. Now I could, we could have done one week in Titus 2. This could have been the sermon and I could have said, now go and ask the Lord to tell you what you need to do. But that's not how Paul wrote Titus 2. He actually started with the what 
and then gave the philosophical undergirding for it. So now what I want us to do is I want us to look at the what. Paul gives a vision for men, or we might say a vision for manhood. And I want us to take it seriously as what it says. Now, that, yeah, that's our second point, a vision for men. I promise a vision for women next week. What Paul ultimately says here is, urge men to live faithful lives following after Jesus. But I'm going to tell you what that looks like. Before we get into the characteristics, I just, I just want to take a minute. I find it very odd, and, and, and maybe it should be troubling, that within Christianity there are, are, are various visions of manhood that are really being pushed out there. Um, one of the current ones is a very triumphalistic, like Jesus was a warrior, so we need to go be warriors for Jesus. Whatever. But whatever your vision of manhood, like let, these, let these words shape it. This might not be the totality of it. It doesn't say anything about being a good husband. It doesn't say anything about being a, a God-honoring father. But let's start with these words of God and let these words shape our philosophicalness rather than a fun quip from somebody. If that didn't mean anything to you and you're like, Jamie, the Bible's enough for me, good. Let's look at the Bible, okay? So, verse 2. In verse 1, he says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In verse 2, he's going to address older men. And then in verse 6, he's going to address younger men. So today, we want, we want to consider both of those. Um, older men... A younger man. Um, <clears throat> we did a little sociological study here at Redeemer, and the average age of a church member here is like 38.7 years old. So if you're older than 38.7, then you're older. Now, I'm not sure that's how we're supposed to study the Bible. We're not supposed to take our sociological studies and lay them at the feet of the Bible. So we're not going to do that, but I just thought that might be helpful because we all think we're young. You know, like I'm 92 and I'm, I'm one of the young ones. I'm not 92, but anyway. So the reason that matters here today is because you get a longer list and the Lord expects more out of you. Or at least maybe some more sanctification. Uh, studying... Um, linguistically, in all of this, most scholars think that that, that divide between older and younger that, that, that Paul would have had in mind is in that 35 to 40 range as well. Um, strange random point that means nothing to this passage. In the time this was written, if you lived to be 40, you had outlive the life expectancy of the day by a substantial amount of time. 
Not sure what that means about anything, but I learned that this week. So there you go. Let's start with older men. Verse 2. That's where Paul starts. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So so let's talk about these characteristics. Understanding that what Paul is saying here is the grace of God at work in you for a prolonged period of time should start to look a certain way. Should start to look a certain way. And often we use vagueness and a lack of specificity to avoid accountability. And Paul just says it should start to look a certain way. First, sober-minded. This means to have a clarity of mind and judgment to pursue the right things. So sober-mindedness means clarity of mind and judgment to pursue the right things. So Christian sober-mindedness would be clarity of mind and judgment to pursue Christ and the things of Christ. So here we should think, this is where we rightly think about defeaters of sober-mindedness would be our addictions and our distractions. So our chemical addictions, by definition, defeat a clarity of mind and judgment to pursue the things of Christ. Our psychological and habitual habit-driven addictions would also prevent a clarity of mind and judgment by producing a cloudiness. Guys, if we're honest, our hobbies can become enemies of sober-mindedness. We're so fixated upon and clouded by our hobbies that we're unable to possess a sober-mindedness to pursue Christ and the things of Christ. I also think I would be not doing us a favor as men to, not, to also here not mention that our over-fixation on work and the things of our work commitments can become clouding and fuzzy and fighting sober-mindedness. The goal of sober-mindedness is the ability to know the Word and know the ways of Christ and to consider them and pursue them with understanding and with clarity. 
Paul comes out of the gate talking about sober-mindedness because if we, we don't know what we're pursuing and we don't know where we're going, we're, we, we can't go anywhere. I'd like to preach a whole sermon on sober-mindedness, but we're going to keep going. Dignified, meaning worthy of respect. There's the common phrase in our circles that men at the core yearn for respect. Fine. This says be respectable. Be a person of Christ-like pursuit and decision-making and modeling such that your life is worthy of respect. Not so that you can be exalted, but so that Christ can be exalted in you. Third, self-controlled, which means not out of control, not driven by impulsive passions or distracted desires. We preached a whole sermon on self-control last week. I'd encourage you to go listen to that. But we could say that the nature of our depravity is such that we are sin-controlled until we become Christ-controlled. And so a Christian vision of self-control doesn't look to self, but it looks to Christ and His Spirit to control our impulses and our desires. Fourth, sound in faith. Meaning, consistent in dependence and trust and allegiance to Jesus. Sound in faith means consistently committed to Christ in all things. Consistently dependent upon Christ in all things. And consistently clinging to the truth of Christ for all things. Point men to be sound in faith. This is, this is where a natural self-reliance is rebuked. The essence of these characteristics is not be awesome and celebrate your awesomeness, but it's understand your weakness and lean on Christ's greatness and Christ's awesomeness, if we want to say that. Sound in love. Sound in love. That means consistent in pursuing what is of ultimate good for others and celebrating that good. We often think love's a feeling. Well, half of love is a feeling. Love is a commitment that causes us to feel. Like if you look at your, your loved ones and say, I love you with no feeling, they're going to see right through that and be like, what? But, but love's not about the feeling. Love's about the commitment that moves us to feel. And he's saying, be sound in love, which means love God. Be committed to the Lord and feel devotion and joy and 
freedom in him and be committed to those around you, to what is ultimately good for them and feel a desire for them to experience the blessing and goodness of God. Be sound in love. Sixth, be sound in steadfastness, which means a consistency of inner strength to withstand all the things that come your way in a fallen world. So Paul is painting a picture of a man reformed and reshaped by the grace of God such that he is sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. Verse 6, for younger men, Paul says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, we've had a good laugh at the expense of younger men for a couple weeks now, okay? But this is very telling. I think it tells us that self-control is a key to unlocking all of this pursuit of Christ-like character. It also tells us that since younger men are eventually going to be older men, they got to, by God's grace, find this, this control of Christ as a way of moving forward. And it tells us just how out of control young men can be. So there's a vision here. Whatever our vision of manhood Let it be shaped by this vision of raising up, preparing and equipping sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness, folks. That's what we can yearn that Christ would produce in us. So let me do some application for us. Number one, these things would not be written in the way they're written if they were impossible for the Spirit of God to work in us. That was the long way. Now let me say it the short way. This vision is possible if you are in Christ. So if you're hearing that, you're going, this is impossible. I can't do this alone. Good, you're right where you need to be. God's spirit is who is your help. But if you're hearing that and you're going, this is pie in the sky. I could never be this kind of man. Then you're not believing verse 12, that the grace of God is intended to shape you to renounce and to live in a certain way now. It is possible 
through the work of the Spirit who dwells in us. Number two, men, use verse two as an evaluation, as an evaluation tool of where you are in your life. Where you are doing well, then celebrate the power of God's grace. Where you are failing, pray for the Lord to help you and teach you and guide you and shape you and change you. You know, I stand under these banners every week, proclaiming Christ and making disciples. Proclaiming Christ with the goal of making disciples. Well, what does that mean for me? Verse 2 gives every male a tangible starting point. I don't think it's the totality. I don't think it's a complete list. But it's a great starting point. Often we don't like tangible evaluation because it hurts. Honesty can be a grace from God. Number three. It's not unbiblical or unspiritual to set goals and to make plans. Let me say that positively. It is biblical and it is spiritual to set goals and make plans as long as we yield our goals and our plans to the providence of God. We do this every year, right? January 1st, this is how I'm going to read the Bible this year. What is that? It's a goal and a plan. So why not say, I tend to be very self-reliant. I would love to grow in dependence upon Jesus. And here are some particular ways that I'm going to seek to grow in that way. I think that's a very biblical way to live. Fourth, ask for help. Ask for help. First, ask for help from the Lord. Lean into his grace that saves, which transforms. Ask for help from others. Look around this room. Look around this room. I challenge you to look around this room and see the other men in this room and the and if you have a spouse or a loved one who, who is a female, see these dear brothers and sisters and Christ as gifts from God to help you grow in grace. And then see yourself in the same way to them. <clears throat> Fifth. Ladies, 
Look at verse 2. Let this verse shape your aspirations for the men in your life. Now, there's a whole lot of husbands that just got real uncomfortable. That's fine. But let this verse shape your aspirations for the men in your life. Spouse, children, brother, father, roommate. Well, never mind, I take that back. I wasn't trying to be funny there. Don't mean that. Is this on TV, Andy? Oh. Let this shape your aspirations for the men in your life. Sixth, men and women, let verse two shape how we pray for one another. How we pray for ourselves. Man, these sermons always seem to land like a lead balloon, don't they? Guys, we're not looking for anything more than a church full of people who won't settle for less than what God calls us to. And the stuff in Titus 2 is for every man and for every woman. If it's uncomfortable, lean into it. If it's hard, welcome it. If it stretches your theology to think of a grace that not only saves without merit, but also changes the way that we live, lean into it and let your theology be stretched. I'm going to conclude this way. I'm going to go back to those who might be with us today who aren't necessarily followers of Christ or aren't sure if they are followers of Christ or aren't sure what it would look like to be a follower of Christ. We need Jesus. No one in this room would dare say, I hope, that we're the awesome, strong, put-together people who are sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled and sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Rather, if we're honest, we would say we were the people who were out of control and Christ got control of us. And because Christ is in control, there's fruit. We're not who we once were. Before I became a Christ follower at age 18, I was a very bad human. Very bad. 
choose your secular standard of badness, and I failed that one too, okay? And Christ did something. Christ did something miraculous. He forgave all the badness. He gave me a new heart. He made me a new creature. And I was forever different. One of my childhood friends who is actually now Redeemer's banker tells me often that he believes in God's sovereignty because this horrible person is a Christian. And this horrible person was transformed by Jesus. Man, let, first of all, kids, don't set out to be bad like your pastor was, please. But let this be our testimony. Jesus saves, Jesus intervenes, Jesus changes things, It's been hard, but I'm so glad that Christ's spirit is guiding me through this life. Praise his name. What if that was our testimony? What if we prayed to that end all the time? What if that's what we talked about in our small groups? What if that's what happened when we got together at 6 a.m. on random days of the week? I still don't know why men have to have Bible study at 4.30 in the morning and women can do it at 10. I just don't get it. But if you're going to be up at 4.30, labor for this, right? Guys, I want to invite you. We're going to conclude our service very differently today. And what we're going to have is we're going to have an extended time of prayer for the purity and the Christ-likeness, and the maturity, and the sanctification of the men of Redeemer Church. Ladies, we'll have the same time of prayer next week. I'm going to invite you to pray along with me. If you need to move, if you need to come forward and, and kneel and pray, you're invited to do that. If, if you need to take somebody out of the room and go outside and pray, this is about the Lord working here, so we're not going to try to control that, Okay? But we're going we're gonna to conclude our service with a time of prayer. And then we'll transition into the Lord's Supper.